0: so greetings and welcome back to the hacked off podcast so with me this time we've got steve Jewell. and steve this is going to be really hard because i don't know your job title Let's just start with the first question. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me what your job title is. Tell me what you do here at UK Fast.
1: Okay. Hi, Paul. Um, so I'm Steve Jewell. I'm, my job title is the Director of Public Sector Ooh. for UK Fast. What we do is look after the cloud clients, the hosting of any information and services that we deliver to not just the public sector, but to companies that deliver their services to the public sector. So the way we distinguish that is the protective marking of information, if it's controlled and protectively marked, that's the kind of thing that we would look after as opposed to the commercial parts of the business.
0: Okay, so that's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on, because from Sakarma's point of view, we are the sister company to UK Fast. and we are what we call an offensive cybersecurity company. So we employ hacking techniques to, to carry out what we call ethical hacking. We really do attack people in a real sense. And I always got the impression from our previous conversations that you are more concerned about defending things and keeping things like public sector records, which are going to touch on sensitive details, Uh, to do with things like the NHS, for example. And really the security of that is something that all of us should care about.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. Um, But I think in terms of um, where there's some relevance and crossover is that in order to be able to provide effective defence, we need to understand what those attacks are. So you're right in terms of the focus. Um, That protectively marked information is things like patient records. So it, it's personally important to individuals, reputational damage that might come along with that, which applies to everyone um, and not just to public sector. Um, you know, Equally, it does apply to a government department losing data. It makes headline news immediately as opposed mm-hmm. to a smaller organisation. It may well be just as important, but not quite as damaging.
0: And even from a technical point of view, if it's something that we would consider to be a relatively trivial attack... If it makes the news, it's a government department that's been hacked into. People, I will say people don't read further than below the fold in these stories. So whether it's trivial or whether it's serious, a journalist is always going to go with the headline that's going to get that click-through rate, isn't it? So public sector has lost 150,000 records. It might be a trivial thing from a technical side of looking at it, but that still has a serious knock-on impact on people's confidence.
1: It does, yes. So so we, we have to understand what the reputational damage is as much as we do the technical complexity of an issue, um, the, the potential vulnerabilities that, that people might exploit to get to that information. The damage that could be caused by the access to the information is one part of that assessment, but the actual damage that could be caused not just to that customer or the organisation's reputation, but ours as well. So we work in partnership with those customers to understand what that means, why would a party be interested in it, um, who who they might be, their level of capability to attack are all important to understand to know what technical defences and, and procedural defences we need to have in place to make sure that yeah. that, that doesn't happen.
0: That's interesting. I mean, I, a lot of my job is is taking people that are graduates or new to cybersecurity and turning them into fully fledged consultants. And I always I always try and sort of counsel them very early that what they think is the coolest biggest hack that they've done on a client is actually sometimes not what the client is interested in. And we have a rating scale where we have critical which is very severe, very easy to execute. We have mediums and it goes all the way down to what we call information. And I always think that's a bit false because sometimes you actually get hacked in the information. If you leak names of people, you know, it might not be a very sophisticated, aggressive, nation-state style attack. But actually sometimes just losing that information, not having your hand on it, is more important. And what is important for some of our clients is maybe not what the technical person thinks is important. And sometimes you actually have to lead the consultant into understanding that what the client considers to be important information is not necessarily the technical side of things. So is that a conversation you have to have with people? Do they they come to you and say, we need hosting, we need some kind of technical solution, and it must be bulletproof? How do you lead them down the path of understanding what is important to them? So
1: it's relatively easy with government departments themselves where there is an awful lot of regulation and compliance around what they do, who they can work with and what they ask of us. Um, But as I said, part of what we deliver is not necessarily to a government department, it's to a company that's perhaps producing a software application that they want to sell. It's
0: tendering for something that touches government information. and, And that data
1: will therefore be protectively marked. So working with them is where they really look to us to provide that guidance and advice, which obviously we, we link back to the relevant government departments and NCSC's guidelines and principles that that are there behind it. Um, but it's helping them to understand how to think about that, and and we try to um, to work with them to draft what we'd call the security aspects letter. What is important? Which pieces of information are the sensitive ones? Why is it sensitive? What would happen if it was leaked, if it was stolen? What damage would it cause? And, and by understanding that, you start to expand their, their thinking beyond, um, or oh, we need a firewall because somebody might try to breach this on the internet. If somebody drops the name um, of the client, who it is, and the kind of project they're working on, in a conversation, in a coffee shop, and it's overheard by the wrong person, that could have almost as much damage as somebody trying to break in through a firewall. So it's that kind of total view of what the risks are, what the vulnerabilities are, what the damage and the impact could be. And it's only when you understand
0: that that you can really start to build the right solution. And it's always more than just the technology. It's funny, as I said, we've only done a few of these podcasts, but already you've hit the nail on the head. You know, it's it's the it's the human element is just as important as the technical solution. I I live in Glasgow. You, you will not be surprised, listeners, to know I am Scottish. So full disclosure there. And um, so I have to take this train journey. It's a famous train journey between Glasgow and Edinburgh. And one time I was I was working for a a government organisation, and I was on the train, and uh, I started to. My ear just kind of tuned in to the two guys who were talking behind me. And they were talking about securing FASLANE and how much money the government was going to give them to patrol the outside of the border. I thought, you of all people should be security aware, but you're sitting there on the train... And you've just told me which bits of the our nuclear deterrent base are not going to be as well patrolled as others. I mean, how do we take individuals and make them become more security aware? Everybody wants to throw money at things. Give me the best firewall. Give me the flashing box. Let's call it compliant. How do we lead clients into understanding that it's the, it's the human element just as much as it is the technical solution?
1: I think, gladly, um, we've seen quite a shift in... Policy and guidance and, and thinking that that comes with um, the expectation of a customer when it comes to security of, of anyone that's delivering services to them. One one that they always now mention security and where the data is, etc. That that's been a big plus, but it's it's helped in terms of. This view of security says no and everything that we... (laughs) The security guy is going to
0: come and kill all the fun. Yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah, our our job is to prevent people from doing what they can do. That's not a security solution, that's just a barrier. We've we've moved beyond it and got to the point now where understanding what the purpose of the system and the solution is, is the primary function. But we also understand what the risks and the threats are. Now in some cases, you can't You can't stop everything because you then do lose functionality. So you mitigate them as best you can. And that understanding of what that residual risk is, is probably now more important than it used to be in terms of this idea that this is my problem, I'm going to make it secure. If I put these pieces of technology and these processes in place, no one will be able to ever get in. It's all, you know, I've built my castle now, that's it, I'm safe. It it never really was like that, but I think people now appreciate that more. And therefore, we've stopped blaming people. Mm -hmm. So it's not the individual that's doing something wrong. You still get cases of that, but you should treat those differently. The majority of people want to do the right thing. They're trying to do their job in the best way, and they're not trying to subvert security. But if you don't give them a workable solution, they'll find one.
0: Or if they think that security has so many controls that there's a blame culture they might do something wrong and not have the confidence to report it.
1: Yeah, in which case you can't improve because you're not getting the feedback on you, you what not yeah. So I think we're starting to see that shift in, um, in thinking, in culture, in terms of people wanting to be part of that um, and understanding that if I put my hand up and say, look, you know, this happened, that there'll be a positive outcome from that. Thank you for giving us that feedback because this is what we can do to stop it. Let me show you how that could be done in a better way rather than... That's your fault. You're going to get discipline.
0: So, Steve, uh, you know, Lawrence Jones, the CEO of UK Fast and Sakarma, acquired the company you had, SIA. And let's go back into the history about that. Can you, can you tell me more about the history of SIA, what you were doing and how the acquisition came about?
1: So, when we first started out, um, the company that uh, myself and, and a guy called Martin Knapp we, we built a, a business in the UK that uh, at the time was called Talisman Technologies. We brought some um, some capability and a piece of technology for, over from the US that had been developed for a project with Boeing military aircraft to give them uh, a way of using the internet to share information. It was about military aircraft, therefore it was sensitive. The idea of using the internet only appealed really um, At that point in time, we're really just talking about the internet coming into its own. Um, This is 25 years ago. Um, And there was a potential there. This is a network that people around the world are going to be connected to. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the case at the time, but you could see that's where it's going. And we have large companies trying to build complex systems that require suppliers from all over the world to provide input and parts and, and be involved in. Um, and the way in which information sharing at that time was done was to put those on A3 drawing sheets and send them a spec, and three days later it would arrive in the post and, oh, actually, no, I made a could they the plans Absolutely, people. yeah. yeah. Um, it progressed to CD-ROMs and things like that being passed around, but you know, information sharing at the time was slow. Um, whether you deem that to be secure in terms of you've put all your drawings on a piece of paper or a CD-ROM, put it in the post... At the time, that was seemed to be okay. Only as secure as the security of your postman. Absolutely, yeah. You send it off. I actually have no knowledge where it is until it arrives at the other end. It's not, not how we'd think these days. Um, so we started to develop uh, a platform, a, a piece of technology that, uh, amazingly, we called the Secure Gateway, imaginative title at the time. Which That's what was, it says on the tin. It does exactly what it says on the turn. It was there to provide... Um, authentication and authorization of users from the internet into a set of applications and services. What you would now call it is an SSL VPN, mm-hmm. but at the time they didn't exist. So this was a kind of uh, you know, a new way of trying to encrypt information using a browser at one end and some servers at the other to, to share that data across the internet. That piece of technology um, did take hold. It was approved by the U.S. military to to start to work on military aircraft designs um, with McDonnell Douglas, Boeing and so on. To the point where when uh, anyone bought an aircraft from the U.S., that piece of technology was offered to that nation as part of a technology transfer agreement. As a result of that, when the U.K. started to buy some, some aircraft from Boeing, we were set up in the UK as a small company to bring this piece of technology.
0: So are these military aircraft or commercial aircraft? Military. Military, yes. Yeah, so so it's, as high stakes as high stakes gets. Ab- absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. So again, it, you know, at this point in time, to have that level of confidence and assurance in this piece of technology, it had taken years to get that in the US. It was deployed to UK, Greece, Netherlands, Australia... As I say, where the platforms were being bought, this, um, this technology was offered to them. And in each one of those countries, a small one-person company was set up to say, if this com- country wants to use this, this is how it works. Um, it lasted a little bit of time in a number of those countries, but in the UK, it took hold pretty well. Um, and we partnered with um, what's now Ultra Electronics, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Oracle, and obviously, we wanted some good names that we could put around what we were trying to do, because it required far more than a piece of technology. It was, how do we get people to understand what this could do for them? You need the consultants, you needed the advice, you needed the technology powerhouse that that we could bring together to start to get some traction. And with the UK MOD, we, uh, we started on a project that at the time was called the Future Offensive Air System, FOAS, um, where they wanted to be a little bit more forward-thinking. It was going to be a platform that required suppliers from all over the world to be involved in. The MOD have and had at their time um, a private network that they operated on, and no-one outside of UK MOD can get in, Um, for all good reasons, we understand that. Um, However, all the suppliers they want to work with are not in that
0: network. So, How do we bring them in safely? How do we bring them in securely? How do we know that... Something dodgy is going on because the supplier themselves have been compromised. Correct,
1: yeah. Um, And and lots of, I mean, at that point in time, the thinking was dead simple. My private network is my private network. We we don't put information anywhere else. We only work in-house. And And the way in which anything leaves here is either going to be on a, a, a CD rom or a piece of paper. So it was fairly groundbreaking to try to convince UKMOD, that the internet was a way to share that type of information. And as we expected, you would probably reasonably expect even now, that took a good couple of years to actually get through all of the tests, the the assessments designs. Where did NCSC come in? They came in right at that initial stage. So the idea of using that network as a way to share information um, appealed. However... These are all our concerns. How on earth are we going to make sure that only authorised users get to the, the right data? Most importantly, how are we going to make sure that this connection that we've now added does not allow a path onto the MOD's private network? Oh, imagine if that happened. Mm. Exactly. So the scrutiny around the design, the scrutiny around um, you know, what and how this was trying to be put in place was, was one
0: major element of how all of this work needed to progress, Sorry to interrupt you, this sounds like a very natural progression then. So would I be right in just thinking based on the technology that you developed and its natural applications, you guys ended up having such a high level of expertise and oversight of knowing how to secure public networks like the MOD and plane designs, warship designs, this kind of stuff, that it's a natural transition to... When we move into the world where everybody wants to get their prescription based on a mobile phone app and that kind of stuff it cascades down had you almost lucked out on developing that technology early and being in the right place at the right time <laughs> we know that now yes um, obviously at the point at that time that we
1: were we were developing this as a business we were very much consultative um, we were looking to work with this project team to solve their business needs not develop a cloud-based solution that we could use for other things. The the evolution that came from that was we ended up with a whole set of standards um, that, again, didn't exist. How do you share information isn't just a technology problem. Mm -hmm. So documentation that became part of the, the standards build Electronic information sharing agreements and um, the standards and terms and conditions that needed to be included in contracts if a supplier was going to use this solution to share information, who owns it, who's responsible for it, what happens if all of those things needed to be resolved before this was an operational solution. So by the time we'd finished building this one platform, we had something very unique in terms of an architecture, but also the processes and the understanding of what and how that needed to operate. Um, so that's where we started from. That was what um, what our business you know, managed to, to start with, become um, a supplier of a fairly unique service and solution. We obviously needed to move away from consultative-based, one-project-at-a-time approach if we ever wanted to kind of grow and scale. Um, so we started to look at how applicable that type of technology was outside of the, the military environment to find, unsurprisingly, that patient records in the NHS need to be looked after, um, and not every um, supplier or people work in that type of community are... And you have a solution
0: that's gone through the highest levels of assurances to begin with. Yeah, if
1: it's good enough for that kind of data, then albeit everyone has their own um, requirements, their own governance, they've got their own accreditors and so on that will want to assess it. But if you've achieved it once and you've got all those answers, then really you're just looking at what are the additional nuances that the particular groups That's have got. fair.
0: If you can defend a jet design, I don't have a problem using your solution for my granny's prescription. <laughs> It would be nice if it
1: was seen That's to be simple. that way, um but you know but to be fair, i think part of, part of the reason why lots of different departments and lots of different um, communities in public sector have a have their own view of what that security needs to look like is we go back to that first part of our conversation around. Understanding what the actual threat is and what the impact of the release of that information
0: would be. So, don't don't go on that just yet because I'm I'm going to ask you a a direct question about that. But to finish up the story, tell tell me just a little bit about the acquisition and why why it's a good fit for your organisation and the experience that you have to to come across and join up with UKFAST.
1: Okay, so the. The story in terms of the acquisition goes along the lines that uh, we were a a small business. We'd been very successful in a small niche of delivering information security services to public sector and um, people that wanted to work with public sector organisations. We had our own small data centre that we operated from. but had ambitions of growth that um, that outstripped, should we say, our, our resources and our capability at the time. We needed investment.
0: Scaling that was always going to be a problem. Yes. So partnering and coming across with an organisation like UKFAST presumably provided you with a lot of the resources straight out the box that you would have had the ambition to achieve yourself.
1: That's how it turned out. Um, our, our conversation with Lawrence was uh, was actually that we'd seen UKFAST build and invest a, in a data centre specifically for public sector. So the, the investment had been made here. Um, all of that was available. And UK Fast's ambition were to move into the public sector and start to work more towards gaining you know, a bigger foothold in that market. We came and saw that. And met with Lawrence and asked whether or not we would be able to lease some space in the data center that had been built because it was perfect for our needs. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was part of our growth plan was just to look for where can we find the right resources to help us grow. And literally from a 20-minute conversation around wanting to buy some hosting space... Um, we started the In conversation around whether
0: or not? You know. It was an acquisition. And it's very similar to the Pentest story, you know. If you go back and listen to the conversation Lawrence and I had, he was very frank about it. That, you know, we need the capacity. Let's find a company where there's a natural fit. Let's bring them all together so that we're all working from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. Yeah,
1: um, it was. I think there was two elements. One, one that um, you know, it fitted nicely from our needs and wants were that that availability of resource, that financial impact, the 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 space and the things that we needed, also the marketing and the sales resource that we didn't have ourselves. If we wanted to grow, all those things were actually here waiting for us, ready to use. UK Fast had got all of that in place, but didn't have that... I didn't have that knowledge, 10, by background. 12 years of experience. And yeah. the public sector is a strange place to work sometimes. <laughs> the way in which they operate, um, the rigours, the governance that goes around that... You kind of learn.
0: There's no way you oh, can yeah, go yeah. And, and it's all up. soundness. There's no there's no box <laughs> ticking exercise. You have to you have to be sussed out and be seen to be sound. And it's all very Sir Humphrey. Once they know who you are, then the doors start opening up. Correct. And and word of mouth
1: is a big thing. You know, we built a very good reputation in a small part of the market. So it it was almost an obvious fit that the two things came together. But the piece that really sealed it was the culture. Okay. We care about what it is that we're delivering in terms of the service. It's not a technology platform. That is a part of how we provide a solution to a client. But we care about what the client's trying to do. We care about what service they get. What is that information being used for? And that's not just to understand how to protect it, but it is also to help to understand that we're giving them what they need in order for them to do the job that they bought that solution for in the first place. That managed service element, that care, that kind of approach to really wanting to be customer-focused, it was obvious in how we operated, but it was also obvious from the first day we walked through the doors here that that was how this business had been built. So the cultural fit, as well as the, the technology, the knowledge, experience, and the desire, the natural conclusion was Secure Information Assurance as a business became the UK Fast Public Sector Division. That's
0: fascinating. I mean, it's, you come for the tech, you stay for the customer service, and so you stay because it's obvious that people care. You can't buy that. You can't make that up, can you? <laughs> you can buy it. <laughs> it's just proven, yes. It can be bought. With judicious use of funding, it can be bought. You've just got to buy the right thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting story, Steve, whichever way you look at it. Now, one of the things that you've said is you've mentioned the NCSC. And I think that might be, well, it's not an acronym because it doesn't make a word, but it might be a set of an abbreviation that people aren't familiar with. My understanding is the NCSC is a relatively young organisation. It stands for National Cybersecurity Centre. The way I think of it is it's the public-facing front of GCHQ. I know that that's wrong, and you've spent a bit of time working with them. So can you tell me a little bit more about the NCSC and their role? And hopefully we'll reach out to some of those people and see if they'll come on a a subsequent show. Okay, so we knew them as the
1: Communications and Electronic Security Group, which, as you rightly say, is a a part of GCHQ. So GCHQ... um, yes they are the intelligence services that uh, that protect the country their their whole role in life is to uh, is to make this country safe from you know, foreign and domestic attack um, i think they are 100 years old this year they are indeed um and and there's been quite a bit of celebration of that across uh, various social media the the csg group themselves Um, You you can't entirely say that that became NCSC, but the core of the National Cyber Security Centre was to take that capability that they had and and broaden it. Um, It was very specific in, in what they did to operate prior to the NCSC forming. It was quite clear that... A cyber awareness, a cyber attack, it was all on the increase. We needed to be more aware. It wasn't just government departments that should be protecting themselves. It wasn't
0: just shadowy spy stuff, it was the entire country.
1: Every day, every individual, every business has a threat. And the whole point of that organisation taking a change and and becoming what now is the National Cyber Security Centre was to to provide that guidance to everyone rather than just keep that to the higher, um, the higher areas of concern in, in, uh, in the country. So what do they do? Um, you know, how do? How have we been involved in them? They've provided guidance for quite some years. They've got some um, incredibly good people that, mm-hmm. that understand technically how things work. Who's Very good at communicating it as well. They are and and they provide all the standards and the guidance and again the the change that's that's happened in the last few years is that it's now available for businesses and individuals to go and read and and use to help themselves to become more aware of what the threat is. How do I protect myself against it? It's all there and available it's well presented it's well structured. And say it, available people to go and read, whereas previously, if you kind of didn't work with them, then you probably didn't need to know it. In which case, it wasn't there. But it would
0: live off in some obscure technical vacuum, and it would never be relevant to the the person on the street. Yeah, and and to be fair, I think you know, I've mentioned this kind of concept that we've moved
1: away from. Thankfully, that uh, you know, security was was the barrier and the blocker to things being done. I think. Prior to NCSC's existence, it was kind of the view that people had of the prior organisations, that their job there was to stop people from building solutions that they didn't deem safe enough. <laughs> there's a there's a validity in what they were trying to do, but it's it's now quite clear that what they're trying to do is provide the assistance, the guidance, the help for people to do things in the right way um, to help us build the best systems that we can build. So that guidance we use all the time. There are um, shared portals of information about what the threats are how that's evolving what we should be aware of again to help us to build the right ways to protect things so we see them really as a, as a center of excellence in terms of that knowledge and understanding of what the cybersecurity threat is and the best practices in terms of what we can do to,
0: to prevent it and de-risk it as much as we can so let's definitely reach out to them and see if they'll come and give us a a longer conversation about their work because it's it's important to, to everybody, you know. Um, it's something that I've noticed is they all seem to be singing, again, singing from the same hymn sheet, to use, my, to use a metaphor twice. Um, I've noticed that when they are interviewed on Radio 4 and these these kind of people, they, they are really saying that we are all in it together as a country. Yes. You know, it's everyone's responsibility. It's not just the security and the IT department responsibility. Everybody has to take that step up and defend ourselves. Let's finish with a really hard question. You've said understand the threats. Who are the threats? There's probably a whole episode that we could do about who are the threats. But let let me see what your answer is to the question that my dad asked me. My dad asked me the other day, do you know when I see in the news that Russia is trying to hack our electric grid, is that just sensationalism or is that real? So who are the threats? What are we up against as a country? OK, so the answer is, is that real? Yes, it's real. Um,
1: is it only Russia? No. Um, but, it, but are they involved? Yes. yes. Um, you know, how, how can I answer that question like that? Well, Without the, painting a
0: target on the back of your head. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: <laughs> but but you know, the, the honest answer is that you know, part of what we do to, to know what that threat looks like is we monitor things. So every piece of, uh, of our systems and services that are facing any kind of network are, are monitored live with teams of people sat in front of those screens looking at what the latest information is, where it's coming from. And there's a whole range of things that happen. But I think anyone who's never seen it to just take a look at, um, you know, there are quite a few online tools where you can see what the current threats and attacks are.
0: We will stick a link in the show notes to the North threat map, for example. Yes, for people. perfect. You can sit and watch that in real time. And that answers that question, is
1: Is there a threat? Um, is a certain country part of that, et cetera, et cetera. You can watch where those things come from. Um, I think part of what's changed fairly recently is that Anyone who who knows how to attack with any particular level of sophistication um, is highly unlikely to uh, to be doing it from a place where we
0: can trace their <laughs> location back. Yeah. Um, however, although sometimes they do because they want us to know that they're doing it as well, sir. Indeed, folks, everything you see in the spot. I always say cybersecurity is not like the films, apart from the times where it is like the films.
1: Yes, yes, and and some of the. Uh, in fact, I'm sure that's how some of these things have evolved. That the, uh, the kinds of monitoring and technology that we have in place now has probably been developed as a result of seeing things on the films and has now sort of almost it's brought, a brought thing. us into yeah. uh, brought into
0: reality what we've seen. But you, well, can, you, you can know, you know sta- things a things Trek when Trek a I was a kid that I a think would would a thing I always a thing. I always a little pads that they little where you they had where you could fly the Starship from fly a tiny a little handheld computer little handheld computer. a I thought, I just want to live long little so that I can have a computer that small a computer that small. iPad <laughs> so have a So... I'm waiting for a teleporter. Ah, it's coming. It's going to come. <laughs> I'm sure someone's feverishly working on it. So the short answer is, yes, the threats are real. It's important. We're all in it together. So, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been really good to talk to you. Thanks, Paul. Um, as always, audience, please send us emails. Give us your, your honest feedback. And until we meet again, have a secure day.